Morning, everybody. Good morning. Okay, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 15, because I think a, a brief review is in order. It's been three weeks since uh, we were last together. Acts chapter 15. I guess we'll begin at verse 12 of chapter 15 of Acts. Acts 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's begin our study with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you uh, for giving us your son to be king over this church, to be our redeemer. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would please guide our time as we study his word now. We ask, O Lord, that you would please illumine our hearts and minds to understand these things. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so if you'll recall, if you were here or or watched uh, the last time we were together, the apostles are discussing whether Gentiles need to be circumcised, whether they need to adopt the whole ceremonial law in order to be a part of the people of God. The Judaizers had been going around behind Barnabas and Paul and telling the churches that they had made by preaching the gospel that they, in order to be the people of God, they had to adopt these rites, R-I-T-E-S, the, the ceremonial law, and be circumcised. And of course, you can understand how that, coming especially from you know, Jews who would know such things, Gentiles would take that to heart, and begin to think that they couldn't be justified, they couldn't be a part of God's people unless they were circumcised. Paul and Barnabas took issue with that, created a controversy in the early church, and as I said before, this is probably one of the principal issues in the early church. What is the role of the ceremonial law for believers in Christ, the Messiah who has finally come? So, when they're discussing it, this issue at the Council of Jerusalem, as it's called, this is the first council, it serves as a sort of model for the church on how to settle theological disputes like this one, large controversies. The apostles got together, the elders were there, and they discussed it. At a certain point, after Peter had spoken, Peter spoke and he relates his experience with Cornelius 
uh, the Roman who was added to the people of God, um, he makes it clear that it was based on faith and faith alone. Then James gets up, as we saw, and he quotes Amos. And last time we were together, we looked at Amos, and it looks, when you're reading Amos, this part of Amos cited and quoted somewhat loosely by James, that he's referring to the nation of Israel. They're being restored to favor, and they're being restored to prominence. But James says, of that passage in Amos, that it applies here to this question. The question of whether Gentiles need to do anything, you know, like get circumcised, in addition to faith in Christ, in order to be added to the people of God. And he says, with this, the words of the prophets agree. The words of Amos agree, just as it is written. So he, this language about rebuilding the tent of David from Amos, which appeared to refer to national Israel, is in the handling of James applied instead to God's gathering into his people, rebuilding his house in this way. With this, the words of the prophets agree. I'm reassembling, rebuilding the tent of David by calling the Gentiles to make a people for my own name. An unexpected fulfillment, to be sure, of Amos 9, 11, and 12. But that's what the apostle says. So, before I go on to quote, um, let's see, one at least, two uh, dispensational writers on uh, their principle of hermeneutics um, in general and how it's applied in this case. Are there any questions, clarification, or anything like that before we start rolling? It's been three weeks, so if you are fuzzy on something. Okay, so I think what I'd like to do before we launch into what I just mentioned, the, uh, the, the approach to hermeneutics, and hermeneutics just means interpretation. Before we launch into that, uh, these quotes and, and how I think they should be understood and responded to. I'm going to take a moment to re-emphasize things that we've been discussing several times before. Um, you know, what are the central issues between covenantal you know, theologians and dispensational theologians is whether there are two peoples of God or one people of God. And in conjunction with that, we'd had to, we've looked at a number of different places in the scriptures that seem to, we believe, teach that there is one people of God, and the Gentiles have just been added to it. Not that the God, God has one program for Gentiles, another program for Jews. Different inheritances, different promises, different relationships to this one king. 
who is agreed by all to be king over both? Is it within one single family and household of God, or is it two separate and independent families? And so, you know, over the last few months, really, we've been, occasionally I would add new verses to that discussion. I would say, well, consider, the, you know, the one people of God versus the two people of God in light of this passage. So we'll do a little bit of that um, to help bolster the case um, that there, are, there is one people of God that the understanding of what it takes, what it, what it means to be a Jew in God's sight has, since the coming of Christ, been in a manner of speaking retooled. Um, so, um, we'll look at some verses on that. Interestingly, you know, it occurred to me when I was reading Amos and Acts 15 and its handling of Amos. Thinking about the Gentiles kind of being brought in to the God's people. It struck me as that, that that could be a fulfillment, couldn't it, of Genesis 9.27. Let's look there very quickly. Genesis 9.27. This is after the flood. Remember the event with uh, Shem, Hamath, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, um, his three sons. He gets inebriated, and then uh, he winds up having he winds up cursing Canaan over his conduct, and then and then he says this, Genesis nine twenty six. He also said, Noah also said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem." And let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. So where do we get the term Semites? The name Shem. Japheth is a different line. I mean, all human, the whole human family comes not only from Adam, but it was narrowed down again at the time of the flood to the family of Noah. So the whole human family comes from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Theologians, you know, I mean, there's, it's difficult to prove this sort of thing, but they believe that Japheth um, is, well, obviously a large chunk of those whom we would call Gentiles. Ham and his offspring as well. But Interestingly, it says, may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So I just noticed it, that when I was reading Acts 15, and it talks about James is saying that the Gentiles coming into and rebuilding the tents of David, it just kind of brought me back to this promise. Could it not be a fulfillment? In Acts 15, the Gentiles being brought in, the sons, as it were, of Japheth coming in to occupy the along with the, the, the Shemites, the tents of David, the tents of Shem. Anyway, just kind of an aside there. Um, all right, so the redefinition, to, to get back to this little uh, excursus uh, that, we're, that you should be used to by now, where we look at the, how the Bible redefines Jewishness. Let's go to Le- Revelation 2. 
and verse 9. Now, take note that it's called the revelation at the beginning. The revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. It's not the book of Revelations where, you know, you're having these visions and you're having these revelations. That's not really the idea. It's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you refer to it, always refer to it as the book of Revelation. Or the Apocalypse, as the Roman Catholics would call it, which means the same thing in Greek. Okay, so Revelation 2, verse 9. The Lord says to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Okay, so the, it, the point here, let's look at verse oh, 9 of chapter 3 as well. 2.9 and 3.9. To the church in Philadelphia, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of, uh, synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. Okay, so this is the first century. You have the church claiming to be, you know, which is largely a Gentile church. Not entirely, of course neither then nor now. It's composed, and always has been, of Jew and Gentiles alike. This is the first century. Things are starting to fall out. You know, the, they were trying to convert the Jews a lot, but there were very few, you know, after the time of the apostles who were coming in to the church. And our Lord is revealing that there are two people who are making a claim to Jewishness. If you're outside of the church, you can't make that claim. As our Lord said during his earthly ministry, you claim Abraham for your father, but the devil is your father. And that is the case for Jew and Gentile both. If you are not united to Christ by faith, your father is the devil. You can't make a claim to being a child of Abraham unless you're united to me. So there's a couple of verses again to reveal that there are going to be two bodies in this world making claim to true Jewishness. If you are not united to me, you cannot be Jewish. I am the new Israel. I am the faithful Israel. If you're united to me, you are a child of Abraham. That is repeated over and over again in the New Testament by various apostles. As we saw, let's look at Galatians. As we saw in Galatians 2 and 3. Or excuse me, Romans 2. The, clo the close of Romans 2, Paul reveals that... Uh, Jewishness is, and circumcision are not matters of the flesh. They are matters of the heart by the spirit. And then now, looking here at Galatians 2.15, we've already dealt with Galatians 3, which talks about true sonship to Abraham and being a, the seed of Abraham, who's Christ. And at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, he then goes on to say, and if you are united to Christ, you are children of Abraham. But looking at chapter 2 of Galatians now, let's look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. All right, let's stop right there. 
We ourselves are we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now you'll recall that Paul in this letter refers to that moment when he confronted I mean just in the the prior verses here just prior to this verse he relates how he confronted Peter because when he was fellowshipping with the Gentiles sharing table fellowship with them Judaizers came down from Jerusalem and talked to everybody how that's wrong. The ceremonial law forbids the Jews to eat with the Gentiles. These Judaizers Judaizers wanted to preserve that division. And Peter was impressed with their arguments. And so he separated himself from table fellowship with the Gentiles. Paul rebukes him publicly. And then he says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now this is an interpretive interpretive challenge because in the commentaries you'll see discussion of this. Who is he talking about here? Why would he be trying to unite Jew and Gentile together without distinction within the church, within the one people of God? And then turn around and use this language. When he says we ourselves are Jews, is he saying me and Peter and the rest of the people who are circumcised according to the flesh? We're, Gen- we're Jews, but not Gentile sinners. That seems at odds with his whole point that he was just making. Back when he confronted Peter and in the context of this letter. This almost arrogant distinction, preservation of the distinction between Jews by birth and those who are Gentile sinners is contrary to the spirit of the letter, the message of the letter, and to his history of when he, which he refers to in this letter, of conflicting with Peter over this question. And I have never been satisfied with anything I read in the commentaries. So studying this in the Greek, I believe, and paying attention to the flow of his thought is the answer. When he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, it's not. The Greek says, enfuse, and that means according to nature according to nature or by nature and not Gentile sinners. Now that that phrase lends itself to two meanings. Now, at first this is going to sound a little outlandish until we have a chance to develop this thought. But I think Paul is saying here that we who are Jews by renewed nature We ourselves are Jews. Now, is he incorporating the Gentiles into that we? Or is he excluding them? He says Gentile sinners, but we've seen in the New Testament, in the first chapter, the first letter, excuse me, of Peter, when he tells the church, a church comprised mostly of Gentiles, to keep your contact, conduct 
pure among the Gentiles. He's making a division between the church and those outside the church. Keep your conduct pure amongst those people out there. And he calls those people out there Gentiles. So I think Paul is doing the same thing here. Um, before I develop that, yes, John, you had a thought. Who would be Gentiles in that sense? Exactly. I think that, now you see that throughout this letter. He develops it as he goes on in the following chapter a lot about sonship to Abraham. So that's the larger context here. But look at, let's look at the immediate context to see if my theory holds any water because context is king in interpretation. I've alleged that there's a historical context here. The Peter-Paul conflict over, you know, Divide, continuing to divide Jew and Gentile by the ceremonial law. And I've referred to the larger context of this letter, Galatians 3, where he defines what true sonship to Abraham is, and he defines it around Christ, union with him. But let's look at the immediate context. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The question is, what does he mean by we? Does we include the Gentiles? Jew and Gentile, by renewed nature, the true Jews. And that's what he means by nature. When he's, it says by birth, in Greek can be translated by nature. Is he including the Jews or, and the Gentiles? And then putting outside there, Gentile sinners, meaning reference to everyone outside the church, outside this we? Or is he preserving this distinction between Jews by physical descent from Abraham and everybody on the outside, Gentiles traditionally understood, Gentile sinners. Is he referring to Gentiles according to the flesh? So in other words, is he, is he referring to spiritual Jews and spiritual Gentiles or physical Jews and physical Gentiles? Let's look at the context. He goes on. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, we see this, these pronouns again in this, this immediate context. We and our. Possessive and nominative. <laughs> nominative. So, the we is always referring to the same people. After verse 16, or 15. It's always referring to those who believe in Christ. And so, I'm going to advocate for the first time, as far as I know, that the we in verse 15 has the same referent as the we 
in verses 16 and 17. Paul is saying here what's consistent with the immediate context, with the larger context of Galatians, and the historical context of the dispute in the church. He's adopting the same spiritual distinction that Peter adopts in his letters, that it's we who believe in Christ that are by nature reborn, renewed nature, Jews. And that everybody else outside of that is a Gentile, here a Gentile sinner. And, you know, back then, when they're writing these letters, they didn't have word processors. Now, when we want to emphasize something, we can underline it. We can click U in our little, you know, interface. And we can select text that we want to emphasize. We can italicize it. We have ways of emphasizing text. In the Greek, when they would write, they didn't have that, of course. They would emphasize things by placing them at the front of sentences and the front of clauses. And when Paul is writing this, he puts this we at the beginning of the clause. So the rhetorical value of that is that he's saying we are Jews and not Gentile sinners. We in the church, we who are united to Christ, the emphasis is on we for a reason. Because he's just got done discussing how Jews, according to the flesh, are trying to preserve this distinction between themselves, even in the church, between themselves and those other people who are not physical descendants from Abraham. And then Paul turns around and says, we, we ourselves are Jews and not Gentile sinners. And then he goes on to explain, to reveal, by his continued use of this, these plural pronouns, who he means by we. We who have trusted in Christ are the ones who are true, true Jews. That's consistent with the immediate context, the larger context of the letter, and the historical context of this major question in the first century of the role of the ceremonial law the, and preserving these distinctions uh, between Jew and Gentile, even within the church. And like I said, the, the plural pronouns occur two more times in verse 16, two more times in verse 17, always the same uh, group of people. Okay. So, again, what's the point? The point is, the New Testament's redefining for us what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be a, a Gentile, what it means to be a son of Abraham. And Paul does it again here. Um, and I submit to you that he is doing that here. Any comments or questions about that before we proceed? Which I guess I've spent more time on that than I, than I should have. But sometimes you have to get down into the details. Um, all right, so with the question of Jewishness, being a child of Abraham is being redirected in the New Testament away from this idea of physical descent from Abraham and to this spiritual idea of union with Christ, the true Israelite, who sums up in his, himself the whole people of God. But the, the Bible, the New Testament, also goes on to redirect 
our thoughts about the land, the land of Israel, Canaan, Palestine, to the idea of the new earth. Let's look at Romans 4. Romans 4, Four thirteen of Romans. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Here in Romans 4, Paul is revealing that the promise is given to Abraham and you'll know that the promise is, if you're familiar with the Old Testament in Genesis, that God is promising to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob this parcel of land in the Near East we call Canaan or Palestine. And to this day, even many Christians, as we know, that's the point of this class, dispensationalists are holding to uh, the idea that this same parcel of land is the, the object of this promise. Now, We've approached that a number of ways over the course of the last several months. Um, but another way to understand this is that it was a picture not only of you know, the kingdom, the king in union with his, his subjects in this realm, this kingdom of God. That's not only an, one important way of understanding those Old Testament promises about a land and the its fruits and its peace. But also, there's evidence in the New Testament that our attention that was once, as a God's people, directed towards that land as the fulfillment of God's promise to the fathers is actually to be understood as the new, the new earth in the sense of the new heavens and new earth. So there's a redirection there as well. Paul says here that Abraham was, and his offspring, which he, you know, he develops. I mean, look at the 229 again, just as a reminder. But a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Jew is a one who inwardly. Here he goes on to say that the land that was promised is the world. And we know from other places in the New Testament that will be a renewed world, a new heavens and a new earth. But it's just interesting to note here that Paul just casually you know, says, the object of this promise here to Abraham, by the way, is the world. And not just one, one you know, geographically speaking, an insignificant percentage of that world, but the whole world. And let's look at Matthew 5.5. 5. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, of course, dispensationalists, theologians have an answer for that. They're always ready with an answer. 
And the answer here would be, well, this is for the church. They'll inherit the earth. The Jews are promised a little parcel of land, and that's what they're getting. But I don't think there's evidence in the New Testament to justify this ongoing distinction between Jew and Gentile. In fact, all the evidence is against it. All the evidence is in, and it is in favor of the conclusion that God has one people, which are likened in the scripture to a single household in which, or in Hebrews it says, you are that house. And Moses, you know, the paragon of Jewishness in the Old Testament, he's a servant within that same house, and Christ is over that one house. And when Romans 11, when Paul talks about the Gentiles, as we looked at, being added to the one olive tree that is the people of God. It's not a question of a second olive tree with a second inheritance, as it were. But a single olive tree, the one people of God, Jewish branches that don't believe are united to Christ by faith, by faith who is that tree. They're broken off that one single tree and believing Gentiles are grafted in. So let's move on to discuss that a little more. I have a few more verses for us to look at with respect to uh, God's people being one people and not two peoples. Let's look quickly at Genesis 28, verse 4. Twenty-eight and verse four. May may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Reading Genesis eighteen, there's no question about what land he's referring to. Is there? The phrase here that I want you to note before we look at a New Testament uh, handling of this language is the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham had a referent in the Old Testament. It was the land of Canaan. Let's go to Galatians 3. A huge chapter for, from, of apostolic, as far as apostolic teaching goes on these subjects. We find ourselves again in Galatians 3. Let's look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, now, there are two main parts of this verse. Both of them are begin with the same phrase in Greek. Well, actually, a same particle in Greek. Hina is the particle. And it introduces a purpose clause. Hina introduces purpose clause. And we see two hinas in this verse. And each of them introduces its own purpose clause. So, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, so that, for the purpose that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles. And again, purpose. So that, 
we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what the grammar is telling us here in no uncertain terms is that the promised spirit is the promise to Abraham. The blessing of Abraham, referred to in Genesis 28, the blessing is revealed, the blessing of Abraham is revealed here to be receiving the Spirit. That might be difficult for some people to accept, but that's what the grammar says. That the blessing of Abraham is the promised Spirit. Deal with it. All right. Now, one last place, uh, one last uh, verse on the subject of Christ being over one people, not two, over a single flock, not two. Let's go to John, chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I will bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Christ was to be the shepherd of one flock, not two. But who are the two parties in contemplation? Just looking at this, he doesn't deliberately say who he's talking about. He says, I have another flock. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Who are the two parties implied in this text? Jews and Gentiles. Single flock, single shepherd. It's always the consistent message throughout the New Testament. One king over one kingdom comprised of one body of people, which is composed of Jew and Gentile, believers in Christ, united to him by faith, worked by the same spirit. One shepherd, one fold. Okay. Now, again, the idea of bringing these in occasionally as we go along the class is to keep this idea fresh in your mind that the New Testament's always delivering the same message from a number of different places, whether it's Christ himself or his authoritative interpreters of the Old Testament and of his own person and work, his apostles. I'm going to read you a quote. We're going to revisit now the question of uh, hermeneutics. Okay, now here's a quote from... Um, This one is from Charles Ryrie. Based on the philosophy that God originated language for the purpose of communicating his message to man, and that he intended man to understand that message, literal interpretation seeks to interpret that message plainly. Based on the philosophy that God originated language for the purpose of communicating his message to man, and that he intended man to understand that message, literal interpretation seeks to interpret that message plainly. 
Now, we believe in literal interpretation too, but not where the Bible tells us not to. And the Bible sometimes tells us not to. Now, the prophets, now consider, considering what he said here, and he does re- refer to this as a philosophy, this isn't a biblically mandated principle of hermeneutics. The Bible never tells you to do this. It says based on the philosophy, that an assumption, a human thought, that God originated languages for the purpose of communicating his message to man, that he intended to man to understand that message, etc. That's why they approach the prophets the way they do, to, make that, to connect those two dots. That's why they interpret the prophets literalistically. Even when the apostles come along later and say, you know, this is how that prophet's to be understood. This is, this is the fulfillment here, these Gentiles coming into the church and rebuilding the tent of David like, to, like our handling today of Amos 9 by James. They come along and they say, this is how that's to be understood. They still hold to this philosophy. But that can't be a fulfillment because that would be confusing. That God would, you know, shift like that and say the Gentiles coming in is how, you know, Israel becomes great again. That's not in the Old Testament text, so you're not interpreting that literally. All right, well, sometimes the, the prophets, they're oftentimes tasked with speaking enigmatically and not plainly. Let's turn to Numbers 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 12. The Lord here is defending his servant Moses. And he says in verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 8 of 12. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, myself, or make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So what is God doing here? He's distinguishing his special prophet, Moses, with whom he is, has an intimate friendship. He talks to him clearly, plainly, face to face. And he distinguishes that relationship from the rest of the prophets, with whom he oftentimes speaks enigmatically. Not clearly. In riddles. So, it's not true. This philosophy of hermeneutics doesn't pan out. The Old Testament tells us in the Pentateuch, God tells the people of Israel, I speak enigmatically and through riddles through the prophets. And note how I, just, I speak with Moses and how different that is. It's not like that. Sometimes the prophets don't even understand themselves the import of what they're saying as well. Let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. Peter writes, chapter 1, verse 10 of his first epistle. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, into which things the angels long to look. They didn't even fully understand themselves what they were saying. All right, so dispensationalists are not interpreting, as we've seen, the dispensationalists, they, they, they say that God is only communicating to us clearly and plainly all the time. And we need to interpret biblical texts literally. But we have seen how they don't approach the New Testament with the same rule. Dispensationalists are not interpreting authoritative apostolic handling of prophecy in the New Testament plainly. We're going to have to... Uh, Next week, when we um, come back, Lord willing, there will be another quote where a dispensationalist writer will um, be applying these principles to the text that we looked at today. Well, we looked at the New Testament interpretation of it. But he does so as well. Dispensationalists know about this handling of Amos by James in Acts 15. We're going to look at that um, in, the hand, in the handling of a progressive dispensationalist, Robert Saucy. Um, but let's, uh, I guess we have to close there. So um, that's what we'll do next week. I have, uh, I have one more uh, passage to look at next time. We'll begin by doing that. In fact, if you want to look at it over the uh, coming week, if you have a chance, look at Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. Because Paul talks about a mystery that was hidden before the time of the apostles. When the apostles come along, their job is to make this mystery known. Dispensationalists argue that Paul is saying that that mystery is this whole idea of Gentile salvation. But that's, we disagree, and we'll talk about that. So look at Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. Uh, try to think, figure out what he means by the mystery when, he, when Paul talk, refers to that, uses that term. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Then we'll get into this other quote on hermeneutics as applied to the Acts 15 and Amos 9 uh, question. Um, but let us close now with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for giving us the apostles so that we might understand the totality of your word. Help us, O oh Lord, uh, to uh, both understand and embrace the truths revealed in the New Testament about the person of work in, of Christ as prophesied and foreseen in types, shadows, and figures in the Old Testament. Now, Lord, we ask that you please bless us as we gather together uh, to worship you and to lift up your name. Help us to do so with undivided hearts and undivided uh, hearts and undistracted minds. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.